Today I have joining me Dr. Eve Merrim. She has a PsyD uh, and is a clinical and forensic psychologist and also a certified Jungian analyst in private practice in Orange, California. She has a rich and varied background, including decades of experience providing treatment and assessment, both depth-oriented and forensic. Her experience bridges these two apparently divergent areas of psychology, forensic and Jungian, and everything in between. A consistent personal and professional awareness of the instrumental nature of the unconscious and all that we are and do infuses all of her work and her life. Along with psychological testing and assessment, she has provided intervention and treatment for clients including children and families suffering from child abuse, criminal histories, drug abuse, and mild to severe mental disorders. Eight years serving on the State of California panel evaluating potentially sexually violent predators in the prisons, and 30 years working with sexual abuse perpetrators, victims, and families. She is committed to making the wonderful message of Young available to the diverse world across perceived barriers. She is a member of the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts, the C.G. Jung Institute of Santa Fe, New Mexico, and the International Association for Analytical Psychology. Dr. Merrim has authored two books. Uh, the one that we're going to discuss today is her newly released one. It's called The Schizophrenia Complex. It was published by Caron Publications in 2022, as well as Psychopathy Within, published in 2016. Um, Dr. Maram, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Daniel. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if we could, if we could get started by just, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and what got you originally interested in studying psychology. Um, how much time do we have? <laughs> uh, that's a big question, and I'll try to tailor it toward what has brought us here today, at least ostensibly. Um, as a Jungian, I thought about this, actually, because you had warned me, you might be asking me that big question. Um, as a Jungian, uh, one of the uh, defining uh, consistencies, I think, in our approach is honoring the unconscious layer. And so um, I have not always uh, exclusively studied psychology. I was an English and a dance major at UCSD. Um, my graduate studies have all been in psychology. Uh, my, my way into that field uh, I think is also um, sort of, it, 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 encaps, it encapsulates a bridge between art and science. Oh. And so I, I have found in psychology a way to follow my heart's passion, but within the framework of, a, of an academic and intellectual, you know, um, background, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I love working with people. Wow. Uh, yeah. Okay. And how how did you hear about Jung? Um, my father and stepmother gave me a, a copy of Man and His Symbols when I was, I think, nineteen. Oh. Two years ago. So um, I fell in love with it. And my relationship with Jung has been just that. I have always found in him uh, that pleasure that we find in someone who says what we're thinking and feeling. Uh. You know, like you'll hear somebody speak up and their words are just exactly what you would have said if you could have thought of it, you know. So uh -huh. he, he uh, really uh, touches my soul. And, mm. of course, he's such a prolific writer and has... Um, is also a, a unique style where he kind of wanders, you know, <laughs> one thing and then the next volume he'll contradict himself or he puts it in a different, or his language perhaps is, you know, more reflective of uh, early 20th century Switzerland than what we would use today. But the essence, the spirit of his um, philosophy of life is something I have always resonated with. I avoided becoming an analyst as long as I possibly could. <laughs> it's a, it's a, uh, I think, a necessarily painful and arduous journey along with the joy. Um, uh. It's not something I, I think 
at least for me, it wouldn't have been something I would have done, kind of like writing this book, unless I felt I really didn't have a choice. So I was already a psychologist and an MFP and had all these titles and licenses and wrote the, book, the first book. And I went to Kuznacht and hung out at the institute there and took uh, some training at uh, the Jung Institute there, which was wonderful, and also sort of visited in some other places, but landed eventually in the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts, where I did undergo the training. And I'm very grateful for that experience. Hmm. But it was an arduous experience. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, um, you know, Jung once said, uh, thank God I'm not a Jungian. I don't know if you've heard that one. And he also really didn't want any institutes named after him or trying to carry on his legacy because he felt that the very nature of an institute was sort of compromise the essence of what he offered us, which had so much soul. But... Um, he obviously we, we disobeyed, and I mean I think when the the LA Institute there's this story that I'm probably going to botch, but there was, it's something along the lines of uh, he had written them a letter when they were trying to found the institute. He said, well if you're going to do it, at least make it as disorganized as possible. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's interesting. Yeah. So you can only imagine, you know, so you got all these types who are drawn to Jung for hmm. some version of the, the kind of. Uh, attraction I'm describing, mm -hmm. we all have different ideas about it, and most of us, I will say, are essentially introverted, and mm -hmm. there's this famous joke about, you know, well, Jungians don't have any sensate function, which I think is baloney. I mean, if you don't have a sensate, how do you do your taxes? But <laughs> I'm rare in terms of uh, speaking out about that. So, I mean, basically, they're proud of, of not being particularly organized uh -huh. ways. I I may be offending somebody, and if so, I apologize. <laughs> uh, but institutes by their nature, especially something like this, where it's training you to do something so important, um, there's that evaluative function. We all know how that feels. It puts us into every complex under the sun to be, yeah. you know, and especially when this is soul work. And so you're showing up, and I mean, it, you're, all of your complexes come to light and that's part of the training so it's in, in that regard I, I think it has a, a layer of of um, intense difficulty that perhaps is or at least different from others other mm. training I, I would yeah I would I would then wonder like how how do you properly evaluate someone's soul work you know but I mean that's a whole different discussion but I um because <laughs> I'm someone I'm I'm going through for my psyche at the moment, and when I'm finished, I seriously consider going to a, yeah. trying to get my, yeah, going through a Jungian Institute, and um, I've talked with various people about that, but it goes back to how you said, like, when you read Jung, it was like he, the words that he was saying was, uh, I, I sent a quote to one of my friends just yesterday from Jung, and my friend said, I feel like it's explaining what I've been trying to figure out for years. And so often when I read him, I, that's what it feels like. It's, yeah, it's just, yeah. it's wonderful. Yeah. It's just amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Um, okay, good. So that, that was kind of like way later in your career. Um, and then can you tell us, for anyone who hasn't read this book, The Schizophrenia Complex, can you give us kind of an overarching idea of what it's about? And, um, yeah, what it's about, and then we'll kind of get into what prompted you to, like, write it and stuff like that. Okay. I'll try to make this a nutshell. Um, the book is, first I'll tell you what it's not. It is okay. not a book about what is schizophrenia. So it's not uh, an attempt to define schizophrenia. Hmm. Um, it includes some mention of prevailing definitions. It includes a dip into theory and into uh, clinical uh, history in, in dealing with this tremendous topic. Um, but the schizophrenia complex focuses on the thoughts and feelings that are constellated by encounters with what we call schizophrenia, which from my perspective, a Jungian perspective, 
involves our encounters with the unconscious. Mm. It's chaotic, it's out of control, it's unpredictable, we don't really know what it is. Mm. We can't really, we really can't define it. Um, we all have an unconscious, but when we come up against someone who is in a, a psychotic episode, for example, it can bring up all kinds of feelings, not just about this person and what they happen to be going through, but broader, one might say, archetypal uh, topic of bumping up against the unconscious in that vast, mysterious, unpredictable bedrock that underlies all of our lives. We don't like going there as a rule. Ego consciousness prefers, you know, the bright light, and that's good. We need ego consciousness in order to function. But our fears uh, about encountering madness, about encountering what we call schizophrenia, result in a tremendous stigma against those who are having what we call schizophrenia, also uh, create a tremendous uh, problem for uh, emotional, psychological, for families, and, you know, broader into the collective community. How do we deal with this thing? Hmm. So um, the focus of the book is the thoughts and feelings that are generated by an encounter with the unconscious. Hmm. There's one more little bit about that. The two um, elements that I uh, really attempt to uh, emphasize in responding to this are, number one, to understand uh, what we call schizophrenia in terms of an image of an ego flooded by unconscious contents. It's, and there's a wonderful illustration by Edinger, I think it's an ego and archetype on page five, and it shows, you know, here's here's the, the ego and here's the unconscious, like two little balls on top of themselves, like a, a snowball, snowman. Oh. And um, if it's completely separated, then that means there really isn't any communication between uh, the ego and the self or the unconscious. And then it shows different stages. What you want is you want an overlap so that the ego is able to navigate contents from the unconscious as they rise to consciousness. And that's the look that we want. We want those contents to come into consciousness in a manageable form so that we can use them. Uh -huh. Someone with what we call schizophrenia, it's a flood. There isn't yeah. an ego present to make the navigation possible. You know, so that's the yeah. image for what's going on here. Um, I'm going to digress for just a minute, if you allow me. Yeah. Um, I have a, a this is an example that I brought up in other presentations on the book. But I have a friend uh, who was very resistant to reading the book, which many people are. Even just the, the topic is going to throw people off. I mean, even in little world among family members, I mean, it's just not something everybody rushes to for understandable reasons. She didn't want to read it. I encouraged her. Uh, she got through a couple of chapters and said, no, I can't do it. It's too academic. And, you know, it isn't really. But that was a way of, of uh, just having to withdraw from it. Yeah. And then she said she forced herself to go back, and she read the whole thing. And she said, you know, and something odd happened to my attitude. I saw a woman in the street just walking through town. She doesn't live anywhere near her, is not psychologically trained or oriented. But she saw this woman, and she said um, typically she would have been uh, repulsed. She would have crossed the other side of the street, thinking, oh, a crazy person wanted to get away. But instead, for a moment, she paused, she looked at her, and she thought, oh, she's having an encounter with her unconscious. <laughs> So in that moment, there's a, there's, there's a, a thinking process operating that questions not only our assumptions about, you know, what we call schizophrenia, but our emotional and psychological judgments about it. So she was able to, the understanding meant a, a shift in attitude. So that's an example of what I'm hoping can happen in terms of using that image of ego unconscious. Okay. The other thing is that, honestly, um, in this grab bag of life, 
our tattered existence, all these things that happen to us without our choosing, and sometimes they're good and a lot of times they're not, and frequently things don't go according to plan. I really believe that Eros is the, the scale tipper. You know, love writ large, and, and when love enters into an equation, often it's the only thing that can, can you know, turn an otherwise uh, very dire uh, appearing situation into something quite different. And that honestly is how I would also describe my experience with the schizophrenia complex in our family. So, okay. That was a long-winded. Uh, what was I going to do? A, a little. No, that was very good. Very good. I, I um, I had a question that popped up. I hadn't really thought of it before, but you, you mentioned that a lot of times we are repulsed by coming into contact with someone going through a psychotic episode because it brings the unconscious to the foreground, and especially if we're like. You know, we don't want to, we want to have boundaries, barriers, so we don't want to be confronted with that. And then um, your friend, through reading the book, she was able to kind of drop down that defense and see the person as, oh, they're just having a confrontation with the unconscious. or the, an ex Does that, would that also indicate that she's now more willing to she is now more willing to be exposed to the unconscious and more acceptable or more, does that make sense? It does. And I think if I understand you correctly, it is a really good question. So if she's able to have this understanding and insight for, about this stranger in the street, does that also correspond to her attitude about her own unconscious? Is that what yes. you're asking? Yes. Boy, I wish I had the answers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I um, honestly, I kind of doubt it. Okay. But it's a start. It's a start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if you think about it, we typically do not choose our own encounters with the unconscious either. Mm -hmm. So it's not something we are likely. Although this is a whole other subject, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole. However. Mm -hmm. Current interest in psychedelics and sort of uh, inviting and uh, inducing an experience mm. of a psychosis is quite interesting given, you know, this topic we're here discussing today. It's yeah. a different matter when somebody does it voluntarily, but if it comes up in you without your invitation, you're likely to, to go into a complex around it. You're going to mm. be afraid or every fear you've ever had about not being in control, about being crazy, all that is going to come, come percolating mm. up. So, um, yeah, I remember reading um, maybe in The Undiscovered Self by Jung where he said that there was like a minister who took all of like the Old Testament visions and hearing the voice of God to be basically hallucinations or auditory or visionary hallucinations. And he had his own type of hallucination and he was so distressed by it. And Jung was writing like, he, like, uh, there are, you know, the way that we've, the way that the Western world currently understands these types of experience is that it's something to be distressed about because it's a disorder. Whereas before people who, saw things or heard things were given like a higher status or made shaman or made some type of, you know, they're, uh, I don't know. It's, I might get that wrong, but just the way that we see it nowadays, uh, I think is that, yeah, you must be disordered if you're having some type of, if you're seeing things or hearing things that aren't really there, it's not a, um, but yeah, does that make sense? It really does. And, you know, I don't know uh, that it's just about timeline. My, my understanding is that it's also about different cultures. You know, often indigenous cultures uh, have a different attitude and still do, you know, in, in the world. Um, yeah. So, yeah, okay. I mean, he basically, uh, Jung, uh, gave us a tremendous gift. And this is bridging, but it's, I think it's on your topic. Yeah. His, his work at the Berkholtzli. The, the 
psychiatric institute in, oh. in Zurich was fundamental to his attitude about uh, schizophrenic, you know, experiences. Hmm. He saw them as having some meaning, and that was his whole. It's in the book, but it's a the story of the solar phallus man, <clears throat> oh, yeah. where he there was a patient, and he uh, his hallucination. Uh, won't go into the details here, but uh, yeah. Jung uh, came to understand that it uh, it was the same story as a Mithraic liturgy, uh, uh, an ancient text. Text. Mm. Um, so it it t- connected the dots for him that there was a meaning mm. in the hallucinations, you know, and and from there we could conjecture that. Uh, the value, how they're understood, changes. It sort of normalized psychosis, if you will, at a time when our culture and certainly the medical field did not have that attitude. That is where his ideas about the collective unconscious and, I mean, it goes on and on, but everything that his most fundamental uh, beliefs really developed from an initial encounter with schizophrenia, hmm. and we just don't seem to talk about that much. Yeah. Well, why? You know, we don't yeah. like to talk about that. It's you know, we like to think of him as the great doctor. Even the Red Book, where he his own uh, exploration of his interiority, his own inner journey, hmm. made manifest. Wow, what a brain to be able to do that. <laughs> yeah. So he brought it to us. I mean, what a gift, and yet. You know, it wasn't published during his lifetime for a reason. There's mm-hmm. a lot of vigilance and, and resistance, even in the Jungian community, about this dimension of his work, which is absolutely fundamental to what makes him most unique. Yeah, that's very interesting. I had never really thought about the red, like the red book, not being published during his lifetime. Yeah, that's very interesting. Family didn't want him to publish. Didn't want it published right up until it was. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Kit, uh, kind of on a more personal note, you, so I, you know, anyone who reads the book will understand, but you mentioned, um, your interaction with like the schizophrenia complex within the family. Can you, can you tell us about, um, your family experience and what kind of drove you to write this book? Sure. Well, this is the part that is, um, most difficult to talk about. Hmm. Um, as we were sharing before we went live here, um, it's not a topic I would have uh, taken on uh, voluntarily. It was one of those things that the psyche uh, called, tapped me for um, one of those calls you can't refuse. The reason being uh, that my, my adult son uh, was diagnosed with schizophrenia. It's now closer to 10 years ago. Um, and it was um, an absolute, it put us in a tailspin. Um, and um, just as with every other case, as I now understand, uh, his situation was different. His personality was different. You couldn't put him in a box. He had, because people that have schizophrenia also have personalities that consist of all kinds of other characteristics that make every difference in terms of what it looks like and what we can do about it. Hmm. And in this case, there was really no. I go into this more in the book, but I mean, he had, uh, uh, up until young adulthood, there really was no indication to us, and my husband and I are both psychologists, um, no. that was the kind of thing that was going on. It wasn't, he was captain of his high school basketball team, he was, you know, um, attractive, intelligent, and charming, and you know what, he still is all those things, but... Now we understand something very different about him. Um, and our journey having to accept the reality of things not following the script we had in mind um, is basically what pushed me into how, how do I do that. And for me, when I'm having difficulty struggling uh, with uh, the twists and turns of life, that especially those I didn't choose, um, my go-to is writing. I find that 
cathartic. I mean, it helps me to organize my thinking. It turns it into a creative process. And it also uh, sometimes may uh, make what I'm going through useful to someone else, which for me is encouraging. <laughs> so um, all of that came to play here. Um, and in having to deal with uh, my son's uh, experience with honesty, guided by love, um, it also, and I go into some more detail about this in the book, but um, it came to light as it hadn't before that um, there was also someone in my maternal lineage who had um, schizophrenia, or what appeared to be, um, and the way my mother's family handled it was completely different from how we did for very understandable reasons. This was like two generations ago. They were in a they, second generation Swedish. They didn't speak, you know, they, my grandmother didn't speak much English. So here they have a daughter, my mother's sister, who had these symptoms at a time and uh, uh, in our culture, in our uh, our medical um, uh Community. I mean, that was and no therapy, uh, tons of shame, you know, um, and so it was a, a tremendously painful reality that um, it was a tremendous struggle for the family to deal with, and I think it impacted my mom a great deal. She never told me, mm. and it created tremendous uh, schisms, tremendous separations within her family. Really, really chopped off part of the family tree. Uh, and uh, my mom did the best she could with it. She was a true, you know, your mythology Artemis. She was quite the Artemis type where, you know, she's just a, a real trooper. And uh, But this was a, a part of her past that she really could only deal with by cutting it off because it was just um, a tragedy. And I was determined that our response to my son was going to be different from that. She was still alive when this first happened, but then she passed uh, very soon after. Um, so I, I guess that also uh, motivated me because it caused such heartbreak that the family could not deal with my maternal aunt's condition uh, in a way that was at all... Um, infused by love and there was no place uh, for it in, in the community and in their lives to do that. So it really had a tremendous effect. I, I think my mother certainly, uh, the her schizophrenia complex impacted me in ways that I didn't even know. And I talk about that more in the book, how, you know, something, and many of the people that have seen me talk about this, uh, this book, what they share afterwards it's not even necessarily about themselves or about their immediate family, but about the generations just like this. And, oh, wow, well, you know, I had a grandmother who went, you know, uh -huh. in an institution or whatever. And the shame mm -hmm. around And I mean, our our medical, uh, the way the, the, uh, the field of psychiatry uh, has perceived schizophrenia has contributed to this attitude of the schizophrenia complex, to the mm -hmm. shame surrounds, the stigma that surrounds not only this individual, but the family. Um, this, I'll use just one example, and I do mention it in the book. I don't go a lot into theory, but it's relevant here. So uh, the ego psychologists in like the 1940s, I believe I'm getting that right, um, there's a term, the refrigerator mother. I don't know, have you ever heard that? It's yes. Little, have you? Okay. Um, but the idea was that it was because of the coldness of the mother that somehow the uh, uh, normal attachment couldn't happen and that that was what caused schizophrenia. Hmm. Now, so if that's the case and you feel that you believe that sort of hmm. wholeheartedly, then certainly what's your attitude going to be toward a family where this has happened? Oh, we know what's wrong with you. you know? Yeah. So it, um, the ripple effect just goes on and on and on from that kind of thinking. And the, the, the sad part, too, is that honestly, that's not completely, um, I don't think, I don't think that's completely wrong. I just think it's, it doesn't have the kind, and this is what you find with all the many theories about schizophrenia. You can say, oh, that's a good point. 
that may have contributed, but it's not a one-size-fits-all phenomenon. Uh-huh. You know, you're talking about the unconscious here. Of course we uh-huh. can't put it in a box and figure out a treatment plan with a checklist, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah. It reminds me, in a roundabout way, how Freud had his, like, you know, his theories, and then Otto Rank had his, and Adler had his, and it's like, and a lot of, I think Jung even pointed out that in some ways Freud was right in, in some instances, and Adler was right in others, and that you could, yeah, and then, yeah, in some ways that, that might be a factor, but that's not the only factor, or that's not. Right. Yeah. And that's a good point, Daniel, because that's what makes us crazy, pardon my pun, about, you know, dealing with schizophrenia is that we can't come up with a one-size-fits-all definition or treatment plan. And so it's safer for us to just reject the, mm. the phenomenal aspect of it. You know, we want to say, okay, you know, the, okay, this person has this diagnosis. Here's the treatment plan. Let's go for it. But the reality is much more like what you're saying. It's not, and we, I like... I'll say we unions love to say it's not an either or, it's a both and. Uh-huh. In other words, you don't say it's, it's oh, well, that's a wrong theory. Here's the right one. Jung was adamant that, I mean, even in terms of treatment, he said, leave your theories at the door. Uh-huh. And he was phenomenological. What he found, what he encountered in the moment was what he wanted to respond to from uh-huh. his own subjective experience. And what I like to think of as sort of a library in his head. Uh, it wasn't like he said, okay, oh, now I know what you've got. Now I know how I'm going to, you know. It was, he was able to be uh, spontaneous. So, mm. yeah, I, I agree that you take little bits of what resonates for you. And it's not, it's not so much that, you know, you can find pieces of truth, you know, about this phenomenon, about schizophrenia and how to, to work with it in you know, many different theoretical and treatment approaches. Hmm. But we mustn't forget the individual. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, before we get into the individual, I did you, so you talked about like the way, yes, time and context of how your mom's family handled the schizophrenia complex. For you and your husband, when you found out about your son, um, do you think you having a, a background, I, maybe you can't imagine what life would be like if you weren't psychologists, but do you think, how much did you think that helped you in knowing how to handle the situation, knowing how to handle your son's experience? Well, that's a good question and a fair one. I think it helped a great deal hmm. because we didn't have a lot of knowledge and, you know, we, we've worked in, um, you mentioned the forensic piece that I, so another road we won't go down, but I mean, honestly, um, and you mentioned my diverse experience at the beginning. I'll go there instead. Yeah. Basically, uh, both my husband and myself have had a lot of experience, uh, working with individuals that might be called marginalized otherwise. So we, mm-hmm. we are used to, uh, respecting the humanity in an individual before we start, you know, uh, assessing in terms of what society or our, you know, textbooks tell us about them. So, um, yeah, I think it, it helped. It also wasn't so helpful because, of course, just like everybody else, one of the ways that the schizophrenia complex, and I talk about this in the book, one of the ways it manifested for me was to go into great mother mode, oh. you know, like, well, I can love this way, I will solve this one. Uh-huh. It, it was another way of trying to uh, make it manageable, uh, obviously, you know, and um, but not not really leaning into the reality and exploring the reality of what we were dealing with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I think my schizophrenia complex was one form of denial initially. We thought if we could, we actually gave it another um, diagnosis at one point. I put it in the book. Remember, it was really clever. It was something like a, an adjustment disorder with psychotic features. Oh, yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or we also we also are fond of, um, I'm saying we in the sort of collectively at this point, we're fond of the, the uh, diagnosis of um, schizoaffective disorder because it's kind of schizophrenia light. Oh. 
it's a little bit of, well, you know, it's not really quite that word. <laughs> what are we dancing around? You know, the, the challenge here, no matter what we call it, is still to deal with the phenomenon and to be mm. humble for it because it requires that. Yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned you you mentioned how Jung saw that all symptoms, even those with people with what you call schizophrenia, has a meaning. Do um, this is kind of curious. It just it also just popped into my mind. But did your son, after his experience, did you guys talk about what kind of meaning it had, or or if it was trying to like point him like a teleological way? something or did that ever come about um i really i'm i'm hesitant to talk about specific details about okay. my journey out of yeah. two reasons one is out of respect for him yes. the other is that one of the points of the book is how very different these different uh, yeah. experiences are yeah. so you know uh, in terms of his experience he did journal i think a good okay. writer. He, he wrote a great deal about his his uh, journey. Yeah. Uh, but what we did talk about, um, he he fortunately maintained a relationship with us. Mm. Um, so I think that was key in terms of um, what the meaning of this for him. Is that it it basically uh, was a mechanism through which uh, he came. Uh, more into his own identity. Okay. In, in that way, we could say it was a step in his individuation. Yeah. So th this uh, is different from somebody who says, "Oh, I discovered I have a connection with God," or whatever. It wasn't like that, as mm -hmm. I understand it anyway. Uh, but it had a profound meaning in terms of his personal development. So in that regard, I think he was able to make meaning. Of the experience and use it. Yeah, it's very interesting. Can you talk a little bit about? Because I'm sure you mentioned this in the book, and I think uh, one of the most difficult things for having a family member go through something like what your son went through is yes, all of the questions that come up, and like you know, did, how did we not see this coming? I'll, all of that, but um, can you talk through like the process of how, what recommendation would you give for helping a family member and, um, and how, and then how to work through it yourself, not only helping the family member, but working through your own schizophrenia complex. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's a very good question. And it's a very, uh, Big topic. Mm. Um, as I have been saying, I think every situation is different, mm. uh, but perhaps a commonality is that initial uh, emotional response that we have to the shock of realizing that someone we love is encountering the unconscious in a manner we did not plan, they did not mm. plan, that we don't know what to do with. Um, and there's a tremendous um, uh, there's an interweaving of both of those experiences, because, and that's you know that's where the schizophrenia complex kicks in because the family members inevitably, as you're suggesting, are caught up in this experience that really is something very individual. Mm. So um, we, we um, in terms of how to deal with it, I do go into some more detail in the book um, about that um, because part of what I, I'm getting from your question is you're asking, so once we discover that this is what's going on, then what? You know? Yeah. Well, uh, needless to say, resources are very limited to non-existent. It really you have to be creative. Um, I think approaching it with love and honesty and inclusion is tremendously important. But we must take into consideration that this uh, experience affects like siblings, not just the, the parents, but siblings and how they feel. And they may not be ready uh, to lean into it and find meaning. They may want to run. They may feel terrified. They may be uh, angry and grieving because this person is no longer 
the person that they know and love and they begin to wonder. It attacks relation relatedness on many different levels. If this phenomenon attacks relatedness, when you are in the unconscious, in the chaos of that experience, you simply can't connect uh, in, in what we would consider to be a normal way with even people that you love and love you. Now, fortunately, tendrils of that remain. And it, that's so important. So, you know, you hear about the unbridging a little bit. You hear about these situations where families reject a young person yeah. who has this. They try. It's too disappointing, too uh, painful. And so that's what I saw up on Venice Beach when I was tromping around looking for him is young people. I mean, by the a lot of them, you know mainly male, but not exclusively, you see them just um, staring off into space like pace. It's heartbreaking because I knew or I projected that, you know, certainly these people had family somewhere. They had parents at least at one point or somebody, a parent person who, who had loved them. Uh-huh. And, and look at them. They are untethered. Well, the experience itself is untethering. So one of the things we can do as family is not cut whatever happens to be remaining. Mm. It's very hard. But, and it's a long journey mm. and philosophies differ. But honestly, you know, for most individuals, in my experience, medication is tremendously useful and helpful. Okay. It's not to be all and end all, but you really can't do much meaningful therapy without an ego that is at least partially not flooded yeah right you got to yeah. be in the room in order to and it's not once again it's not an either or uh phenomenon two of the cases that i describe in the book one of them um it was uh, my psych assistant that was working directly with him and she said it was like you'd be in session with him and he'd fly out the window so mm-hmm. she didn't panic she was able to be genuinely present with him but it required some special uh, training and uh, patience to just wait until he came back, and he would, and then they could resume. So it's a it's a subtle uh, interplay between attitude, love, you know, persistence, tapping into resources, trying to deal with our own fear and worry, uh, at least. Uh, to such an extent that it doesn't interfere with their capacity to do what we can for the individual who's having the immediate experience. I mean, I think I mean family members need their own sources of support in order to deal with this, and in order to reinforce the fact that their experience is different from that of this beloved other. It's not the same, you know, especially as parents, especially as parents with great mother complexes. We tend to feel like, oh. We're in this together. Well, yeah, kind of. However, part of the healing involves a, a necessary boundary. Maintaining the love, but a necessary boundary. Yeah, that's very... Um, you, you mentioned, I know it's going to be specific to each individual, but you mentioned for your son kind of individuating or a process of individuation. And I am thinking of you know, certain types, let's say, like, um, I'm thinking like schizoid personality style, more of like, um, reclusive, I, you know, kind of, and as maybe a psychoanalytic thinking, they're scared of being devoured or they're, um, so if someone like that then goes through an experience of what we would call schizophrenia, um, and, and then we have, like you said, you had like the great mother complex that kind of came up for you. And then they're, if they're in the process of like individuating, but we're also trying to be there and not let them become untethered. That's a very fine balance. To, yeah. That's, a, that's a, a real nightmare, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And what that points out, and that's why we come back, and I'm happy to hear that you have, you know, you are clearly really uh, leaning into that is the idea of how different these cases are. Hmm. And so every other personality characteristic in the individual is going to have everything to do with 
how they, if they experience a complex, they have to have enough ego consolidation to do so, but also what kinds of complexes they constellate in others, even people in the community, let alone family members, siblings, friends, you know, partners, whatever. So somebody who has a personality disorder, like a schizoid personality disorder, is already uh, quite impacted in terms of their capacity for relatedness, mm-hmm. which means that dealing with them is going to have a, no, a whole other set of um, challenges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, in thinking about kind of the little bit of the theoretical portion of the ego becoming flooded and medications help. Um, would you say that medications help strengthen the ego, or do they help push back the unconscious? Well, I would imagine it's both. Um, because okay. That's where that image from Edinger, I think, is really helpful, because yeah. it's not so much pushing back. I mean, the ego, um, it, it, I, would, I would say that the first order of business is to allow the emergence of more ego consciousness. Mm. I mean, if you want to frame that in terms of pushing back the unconscious, that I suppose that that makes sense. Mm. Um, I don't think the unconscious is necessarily amenable to being pushed anywhere. Uh, (laughs) I would focus on the ego. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then the idea would be that once the ego is kind of strengthened or stabilized, then you allow the unconscious to, you try and be more open to letting the unconscious come into your like everyday experience to where it's, I guess that's where I was confused. Maybe you can't push it back, but it seems like it floods for a reason. And and my thought, it's like you're, if you're trying to like, if you have no contact with the unconscious or you, you're too identified with consciousness, then maybe it floods because that makes sense. Well, it's a theory. Yeah, okay. It's your theory. <laughs> Do you have one? Um, I honestly don't know. That's okay. my response after reading all of this is that, yeah, maybe, you know, hmm. but I would be very hesitant to say, okay, yeah, that's what it is. That's yeah, yeah. what we it might have happened that way for some person. Uh-huh. You know, say somebody, I mean, we don't know to what extent uh, the brain, I mean, the, the, the physiological brain mm-hmm. is involved in some of these cases. And it may be in some and not in others because we don't have enough research to say that that is what happens every time. Yeah. If we did, we would have made more headway in terms of dealing with this, preventing mm-hmm. it and really treating it successfully. But we're still kind of in the dark ages in many ways. Yeah. 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 Um, can, I wanted to. I wanted to ask you. I've asked this question to someone before, and I thought they had a pretty good, insightful answer. But they weren't a union. Uh, I don't think they had really maybe studied Jung a whole lot. So I wanted to ask from a union. Um, I I read that in a psychotic experience. Um, quote, there may be a heightened perceptual awareness of the outside world where colors appear more vivid and sounds seem more intense. There may be an increased sense of meaning and communion with nature or an oceanic feeling of merging with the natural world, feelings that may not be, at least at first, entirely unpleasant. And that quote seems to parallel with some religious experiences and what Jung may refer to during the individuation process. Um, Jung wrote that the self-constellating archetypes and the resultant situations steadily gain in numinosity, indeed are sometimes imbued with a positively eerie demonism and bring the danger of psychosis threateningly close. The upsurging of archetypal material is the stuff of which mental illnesses are made. In the individuation process, the ego is brought face-to-face with an unknown superior power, which is likely to cut the ground from under its feet and blow consciousness to bits. Um, someone who's gone through Jungian analysis and has studied this, do you, what do you, how do you make sense of those two parallels? And um, is there a, 
in my understanding of Jungian analysis, it's kind of to become like individuation is one of the primary kind of, so was he talking about that through that process of individuation, you can come threateningly close to like a psychotic experience or can you make sense of that for me? Well, I can try. Um, I individuation is a is a, a it could include what you're talking about in my understanding, but it's a broader arc. It's okay. about you know our becoming more fully who we are, and it's something we never fully achieve, hmm. but it uh, it defines the process of our lifetimes, hmm. and so it is about integrating. Um, the, the, well, we all have a relationship with not only the personal unconscious, but the collective unconscious. That was one of the things he was, um, he shared with us, you know, his perceptions that is most useful. Yeah. And so part of becoming all the, all of ourselves that we can be is to integrate as much as we can of, of the totality of our, uh, existence, which is all these layers. And if you are, it, it's also about balancing, and it's about our capacity for consciousness. Because without consciousness to make meaning of these archetypal experiences, we can get flooded. We'll go back to that metaphor. That's that's the way I would I would kind of describe it. Now. Um, archetypal experiences i mean archetypal means basically larger than life it's like um patterns of human experience and behavior that are common to humanity uh wherever we live and when and so that uh sort of uh, a substrate of our human experience um is populated by uh, the archetypes. The core of every complex is an archetype. At least that's the way he describes it. Okay. Which means that the stuff that we have to work through in terms of the thoughts and feelings that we are um, stuck on, uh, that we have defenses around, um, that we need to work through in order to proceed with our individuation, mm. um, Those, those complexes require consciousness in order to uh, mediate. And consciousness means the thinking function, in other words. So when we are in a complex, for example, we're so flooded with feelings, we can't think straight. Oh. And, you know, that's, that's one example. Being in a complex is not the same as being in a psychosis, but a psychosis would be an example of um, an absolute tidal wave where there's so much archetypal larger than life energy that you are encountering hmm. that you lose who you are it's the opposite of individuation hmm. it's a delicate balance isn't it because i think what we've read and i couldn't possibly repeat it but um it, it seems like it is suggesting that we need to be able to to some extent to navigate and make meaning of these um experiences with the unconscious in order to uh, really develop who we are in our individuation. You know, it's, um, but you got to be careful, you know, and that's where I'll go back to the Red Book. I think that's such a perfect example. Uh -huh. I mean, nobody could actually do that the way he did uh -huh. you know, because he had such a frame of reference in terms of, you know, history, mythology, archaeology. I mean, psychology, medicine, he was just incredible in his, uh, the library in his head. So when he had those experiences, first of all, he didn't, he didn't avoid them. He didn't panic, but he also didn't get flooded. Hmm. He, he was able to, to swim around and then come back and hmm. then write down what he had experienced. So that's a perfect example when we are unlikely to achieve ourselves, but we could do our own version of it. Of, sort of interacting with these elements of ourselves, but doing so mindfully. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I think, I yeah, I think that connection to the Red Book makes a lot of sense. 
As Honestly, I, yeah. you know, I, to, to, I wasn't going to go down. I'm not, I'm not going to go down the road, but I'm going to kind of look down it for a second okay. here. I mean, this is one of the things that um, really comes up for me in the, the current trend with using the, the psychedelics in order to achieve these mm. states. Um, it can be a slippery slope. And I just think it's so important that we retain uh, patience, mindfulness, and our capacity for logical thinking if we are going to uh, deliberately interact with these archetypal energies. Hmm. Just, yeah. just you know. yeah. I mean, I would say that it, even quite aside from the substances that people are using to induce these. States. I would say just in general. I mean, that's what I tell people in dealing with complexes that are not psychotic, um, that we can't do anything with them if we're in them. That's what Jung said. He said, we're, we, we don't have our complexes. Our complexes have us. You've probably heard that one. Oh, yeah. When you're in your complex, you really can't work on it. You can't use it for individuation. You can't get at that. You're, you're subsumed in that archetypal core. You can't have a relationship with it because for that moment you are it. So mm. you need to get, you know, how do we do that? We take a deep breath. We, we try to locate mindfulness. We try to locate our thinking because then we can get a little breathing room and we'll go, huh, so this is what's going on with me. Mm. We need that, a bit of objectivity, a bit of perspective in order to use the experience. Yeah. And then look back and, and then question, okay, like, Perhaps that, that, that affective state that I was in was out of proportion to that exact experience. So what was it? Yeah. How did it bring that about? Yeah. Uh. yeah. I mean, feelings are facts. They don't have to make sense. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> um, do you, um, at, through all of this, did, did you, did you go through Jungian did you get certified in Jungian analysis during or after your son was diagnosed? After. After. Was, um, what was it like studying all of that and theory and writing? Like, was that a, was that a way for you to kind of, can you talk about why you decided to, you said that, Going to the Jungian Institute was something that you put off for as long as possible. Um, yeah. Well, um, what was it like? Um, honestly, and I thought about this. I hope I wasn't discouraging in terms of you pursuing it. Because oh, I think it's a wonderful thing to do. And you know, yeah. for me, I mean, my circumstances were everybody's circumstances are a little different. How we end up there, I think, what is there is a commonality in that it's an undertaking that deserves a certain amount of awe because you don't know what you are. It's like dealing with the, the archetypal energy. You have to be ready for an immersive personal experience. We like making it academic. I'd say we collectively because, honestly, it's safer and we, we can do the same kinds of ego tripping that we do about everything, you know. But the nature of this content, the nature of the experience, somehow, it seems to me just universally uh, involves another layer of experience. It's because at least, even in terms of our words, we're inviting psyche. And that is, by nature, not within our control. So you enter into a training program like that, you're really opening a door. <laughs> and, um, the, the academic part, the study is wonderful. I would, I would encourage anyone. I mean, it's just, these are gifts of wisdom. And so there's absolutely no loss in taking that on. I think quite the contrary. It's an absolute enrichment of life. Um, how it ends up, uh, how that ends up in the context of the rest of your life is also interesting. And, you know, it's curious. If we're curious about it, it can be quite um, an exploration, a discovery. Well, isn't it interesting? I happen to be studying this, and then this happened. Oh, you know. So, I mean, the more we can, uh, a concept of synchronicity is that you have to understand the meaning. I mean, we've got many lots written about it. We can, we can study it. 
but it doesn't matter if you don't notice it in your life right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? So how did I use the, the, the training? Oh, it was, it was a, a wonderful affirmative frame for everything else that I was going through in my life. Hmm. And my son's experience and everything we went through around him helped to make my life more genuine and hmm. real. And this writing is more genuine and real. If we get any realer, I'm going to drop dead. But I mean, it is <laughs> definitely a, a, a different layer than the previous. Season, so. Yeah, I hope you don't have to write anything more real. Than, <laughs> and for anyone, so, for anyone who hasn't read this book, The Schizophrenia Complex, yeah, I, like she said earlier, her the. It's not that academic. Like she goes into a little bit of theory and history, but the book is really, it's very personable. It's very intimate. It explains things in an easy to understand manner. Um, and it makes, yeah, it, it made me think about things that I had never really thought about before. Like just someone who has gone through that experience coming out of the experience. How is that going to impact you having gone through that experience and? And then the way that people treat you after that or the way that so things like that that I've never really thought about. So I would encourage anyone to read the book. Um, thank you again for writing it and for meeting with me today. Um, thank you so much, Daniel. It's been a real pleasure.